We are talking about the Sermon on the Mount. It's been about eight years since we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, and you probably have noticed that I don't do much verse-by-verse teaching here. That's not really so much my thing. I really like to go topically and then be able to pull verses from wherever and talk about topics. But the Sermon on the Mount is different. The Sermon on the Mount is this concentrated, you know, in in books that have uh, the red letters, Jesus' words in the red letter, it's all red. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, just all red. And it's a beautiful thing to have such a concentrated look at Jesus' teaching, all put together, compiled, in, in a structure that makes sense once you start to decipher what the structure is all about. And we talked about the fact that the Sermon on the Mount has not been used much in, in the church teaching. It's been a conundrum from the church. We talked about how we love that word, conundrum. You know, it's been confusing. It's been something that has been difficult for the church to deal with, especially institutionally. And the reason is that we have a different mindset and a different point of view than Jesus or the first hearers that were listening to his teachings had at that time. And the mindset is that we are looking at scripture and life pretty much through a legal lens. We're looking at things legally. And if we look at the sermon through a legal lens, we're going to find a bunch of rules to obey. And as long as we are thinking that there are these new rules that we need to obey, then we're going to be losing the message that Jesus is trying to get across. Jesus is not giving us more rules to obey. That's not the point. What he is trying to do is redefine the rules that we think we already have. And that's a very different proposition. To redefine those rules so that we can unlearn the things that we think we know which are now limiting us, keeping us from being able to really connect with our God. And then be able to start to engage the processes, the way of living, the way of connecting that will transform us from the inside out to redefine, to unlearn, and then to engage in a way that we can transform. But if we approach it with a legal mindset, we're not going to understand. If we approach it with the point of view that everything needs to be literally true, which is kind of an offshoot, you know, of of the legal mindset, if it needs to be literal, we're also going to miss what Jesus is talking about. Because literally the Sermon on the Mount is absurd. Literally the Sermon on the Mount is completely irrational. Literally it's a set of impossible standards that can't possibly be met. So what are you supposed to do with it? But if we can turn that around and start to look at the sermon through the eyes of a poet in a poetic way, a non-literal way, a figurative way, if we can start to take into account the Aramaic idioms that are at play here because there are idiomatic expressions and things we don't understand all over the place. And if we can start to realize that instead of looking at this sermon and all of scripture for that matter, as just literal, right on the surface truth, and realize that it's pointing to a deeper truth as an experience, but not as a proposition. We propose truth. We lay it out propositionally. Jesus is pointing toward truth that cannot be contained in words, can only be experienced, can only be experienced by our own desire to want to engage what needs to be engaged in order to be able to experience. And so that Western mindset, that Western point of view, legal and literal, causes the misunderstanding of keywords and phrases all throughout and makes it impossible for us to really understand what's going on. And the worst part of it is we think we know What's going on? It's like watching a movie. You ever watch a movie where you're only getting maybe every third word of dialogue? Maybe because they're speaking with thick accents, or maybe because there's subtitles or something else, but you're not getting all the words. Now, your mind tries to stitch things together and create meaning with what you are getting, right? In that experience. But are you getting what was really in the script? Are you getting what the actors are really emoting if you're not hearing all the words? if you're not understanding all the words, and if your mind is just trying to stitch things together. You know, the perfect example is the first beatitude that we talked about. Actually, we talked about it the last couple of weeks. Think about it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One short little line, right? Seems pretty straightforward, but we've got to think about it. Blessed, poor in spirit, for theirs and kingdom of heaven. We don't know what any of those mean, from an Aramaic point of view. 
When we think of blessings, we think of something that is bestowed upon us from outside the inside. Either by God, by another person, by circumstances, we are blessed in sort of a passive way. The blessing comes to us. But tobey, the word that's used here for blessed, means enriched and whole and complete. Congratulations to you. Fortunate are you. The idea is that you have experienced something that has completed you from inside out. Anything but passive. It goes in a completely different direction. It's active. And poor in spirit. We think of that as a negative, someone who is lacking in spiritual gifts. But it's an idiomatic phrase, maskina baruch, which literally means having an attitude of poverty even if you're rich. It's humility and vulnerability, but with a gratitude that gives a person hope even when they realize the only one that they can depend on anymore is God. Because their circumstances are such, their ability is such that they cannot provide for themselves. But to have that sense of dependence and the gratitude that comes with every breath and every meal that you do have is the attitude of the Anavim. For theirs, we think of possession. We think of kingdom as a place that we can enter or we can inherit or we can possess because that's what the words literally say. But Jesus is very clear when he looks at little children, when he looks at someone that has the heart of the anavim, the heart of the child, the line that he uses is, for such as these are kingdom. Kingdom is not a place. Kingdom is a person. Kingdom is you and me when we enter into this quality of life, this way of seeing, this taking the lid off and the blinders off so that we can see the connection that's all around us. And then kingdom of heaven. We think of heaven of the next life. Jesus' first followers thought of a political and physical kingdom in their own time, and Jesus is saying it's neither. He literally spends his entire ministry trying to redefine kingdom of heaven because he's hanging everything that he's teaching on that one phrase, on that arch metaphor that we talked about last week. Literally, it could be translated as the reign of unity. But it is the principles by which God reigns. The principle, his will, if you will, what makes him happy, what delights him, what causes him to continue to do the things that he does. That's the kingdom of heaven. And so when you put that little line together, what are the two words that we actually know literally right off the bat, are and is. Those are the only two words left. Two forms of the verb to be. Everything else we don't understand if we're looking at things from a legal or literal point of view. And this is a problem we have. People say, oh, how can you trust the Bible? You know, it's been translated and mistranslated and copied. You know what? The Bible is the most accurate book from antiquity that we have in human existence. It has been cross-referenced and cross-checked like no other book from antiquity. And we have so many what they call witnesses, manuscripts, over 24,000 that can be cross-referenced in different families from different parts of the Mediterranean area. We have the words, as much as we can tell, accurate. What we don't have is the understanding of what those words mean. And this is what we're trying to reconstruct. This is what we're trying to redefine. If we can, as much as we possibly can, understand what the first hearers would have understood by these words, then we can get closer to what Jesus originally meant. We can, in effect, rescue the sermon from irrelevance. Because I'll tell you what, you miss enough words in that movie, you're going to stop watching. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't hang together anymore. And if you look at the sermon through legal and literal eyes, you will finally, at some point, just dismiss it as Martin Luther did. He said, it's just an impossible standard for us to understand that we can't follow the law anyway, and it's all by grace. Jesus doesn't play games like that. He doesn't give us something we can't follow. He gives us something that is essential for us to engage. But we need to understand it as he delivered it. If we're going to rescue the sermon from irrelevance, from us simply ignoring it, and not applying it to our lives in any real way, then we need to make a shift in mindset, a shift in point of view, and realize that Jesus is pointing to truth, but truth to Jesus is a person, the person of his Father in heaven. He's pointing to a relationship that we can have 
in real time, in our lives, that will redefine everything for us and change our attitude, change our ability to be one, to be connected. And so we're here right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We did the first three Beatitudes last week. So we'll just recap those really quickly, and we're going to hit the rest of them today. And remember that Jesus is giving us the picture of the finished product with these eight Beatitudes. He's showing us just kind of like taking this kingdom person and they're like on a lazy Susan, slowly turning around and we're seeing him or her from all different sides. And he's showing us these attributes. This is what this person looks like. Here's a portrait of kingdom, which is a portrait of a person, not a place, right? So let's look at the first three. And if you have the little inserts, that would be a good thing. Um, Brandon will put the... um, NASB versions, but the paraphrases that I'm going to be reading today are there, and they might be able to help you as we go through this, if you can see them as well as hear them. So the first beatitude we just went through, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now here is a paraphrase, and here's the thing. there are, You can translate or you can paraphrase, and there's two different ways you can translate. When it comes to Aramaic, it is so difficult to translate straight from the language into ours because we, then we get something that looks like blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But to paraphrase, put it into our own words so we can drill down and say what each of those operative phrases or words mean in the original Aramaic and to the original Aramaic listener, then we can start to understand a little bit more. And so all these are paraphrases. They are not literal translations. But listen to this one. Enriched are those who live with a sense of dependence and vulnerability and gratitude. For the reign of God, of unity, is the same as this. No more, no less. Now how different is that? But notice Something like that in English is something that we can start to grab onto. It has some teeth and some traction that we can use to start making choices moment by moment. Second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How about this? Happy are those who long to fill what is lacking in the lives around them, who are weak and broken from the intensity of this desire. They will hear God's voice and be strengthened and encouraged, and they will see the face of that for which they long. Now, some of you are familiar with the message by Eugene Peterson, which is an entire paraphrase of the Bible. You know, we started out with the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs, but he's got the whole Bible now. It's a paraphrase. He put it into his own words to try to get across the way he understood the scriptures. And in most cases, he did a masterful job. And not only that, in most cases, he was able to also capture the Aramaic sense. And so, Second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted from the message. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. That's not bad, huh? And one of the non-canonical gospels, the gospel of Thomas, is something, so maybe you've heard of the gospel of Thomas, but in that, it's just a sayings gospel, just Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. And at one point, Jesus said, blessed is the person who has struggled. He has found life. Same idea, different words. But this is something, again, we can start to do something with. We've all struggled Jesus is saying, if you've struggled, you've found life. You've found the key to the connection, the compassion, the ability to see another in those same kind of struggles. The third beatitude, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Or blessed are the meek, if you're looking at the King James. Now, paraphrase with an Aramaic sense, fortunate are those who are not arrogant or domineering. They will partake in and have their place to stand and live richly. From the message, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. Love that. And from an Aramaic speaker, ripe are those who soften what is rigid inside and out. They shall be open to receive strength and power their natural inheritance from God. 
If we're going to rescue the sermon from irrelevance, these are the kinds of understandings we're going to need to have. We need to dig down underneath these Aramaic phrases and words and find out what they meant to those people. And then we can reconstruct it in such a way that won't be exact to the words, but it'll start to give us a sense pointing toward a truth that we can then engage, something that we can actually use, something that we can do so that there's something else and another way that we can be, which is exactly what Jesus is going for. So let's continue on. The fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now we need to break this down again. We already talked about blessed. Look at all the different ways. Just run down the first word of each paraphrase on that sheet and see all the different ways that blessed is being translated. Happy, fortunate, healed, thriving. Congratulations to those. This is the all the different ways that blessed can be translated. Remember, it's from the inside out. It's the result of an engagement with life, the result of a process that creates this wholeness and this completeness, this enrichment and this ability to see beyond just physical eyes. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Hunger, the kafnin in Aramaic. If you dig down into the roots, there is the image of something, maybe like one of those baby birds. You ever see when the mama bird comes and all the mouths go up and they're screaming? Nah, 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 nah. The idea of turning the mouth toward to long for strengthening and physical being. That's the idea of this. This is that the sun, or the, uh, the flower that turns its face to the sunlight, the birds that turn their face, the baby that turns its face to the source of the food. This is that the image of hunger and thirst, same, parched inwardly, dried out. Maybe we would say burned out. But that idea of an inner dryness, that inner wilderness that we've all experienced, and some of us are experiencing right now, that idea of the hunger turning toward, almost scanning the horizon, looking for the thing that's going to be able to, to scratch the itch, to feed what needs to be fed. That idea of the inner parchedness for righteousness, kenuta. Now, here's an interesting difference between Greek and Hebrew thought. When we think of righteousness as heirs of Greek thought, we're thinking of something abstract, something that is against some standard. It's righteous if it's legal, you know, if, it, if it's lawful, and it's unrighteous if it's not, but it's, it's an abstract mental concept of righteousness. Hebrews don't operate that way. Hebrews are always operating on a concrete basis, their nouns even come from verbs. It's all about action. It's about something where it's boots on the ground. And so for them, righteousness, kenutha, is an inner and outer sense of justice. Not just outward, but it resonates inside. Is that idea of the inner committee, you know, the inner t- the, that group that's always talking to you, those voices in your head? The ideal for a Hebrew is when the interior voices, the interior community, is saying the same thing that the exterior community is saying. When you have that kind of integrity and everything matches up over a sense of justice, that would be kenuta, righteousness. It's a solid base on which things rest. It's a natural stability. Like when you add the third leg to a table and now it can stand on its own. That would be righteousness. It's a sense of rightness, among all the competing voices in your head. Now, if that if you don't resonate with that, I don't know. I mean, how many of you have felt that you've got the devil, little devil on one shoulder and the little angel on the other, and they're just yammering, you know? But to be able to discern the sense of rightness between those competing voices and just have that sense that you just know that you know that the Spirit has spoken to you in such a way that this is the one. I listen to this one. I take this path. That's kenuta. It's concrete. It's visceral. It's something that we can grab onto, that rightness, that stability. Now, there's an extra word added here in the fourth beatitude. The first word that we said is translated, blessed are they. And we talked about tobe being that word, but tobe is what's called a lexeme. It's the, it's the smallest part of the word because in Aramaic, you just add at the beginning of the end prefixes and suffixes instead of having all the little helper words that we have in English. And so that first word actually is tubehun, and it literally means blessed are they. But there's another word right after that, lelein, 
which means those. And so literally, if you were translating, it would be, blessed are they, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, why is that extra word added in there? It's kind of an unnecessary pronoun, isn't it? It seems like to us. But it's much more than a pronoun because if you dig into the roots of Lelaine, it is a sense of layering meaning on top of what's going on. And the idea is a watching and a waiting at night, waiting for something to occur, waiting by lamplight. Remember we talked about selah, the word for prayer, as an inclining toward, a leaning in? It's actually a hunting term where you lay the trap, the snare, cover it over with leaves, and retire into the blinds. And every nerve is like on a hair trigger, and you're waiting for that trap to be sprung, and then you spring into action. And then the idea is that 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 trap means life and death to you and your family. And so you are leaned in. You're waiting for something to happen. Lelaine gives us the same sort of idea, watching and waiting in that time at night by lamplight for something to happen, something to connect with us. There is that sense of desire, desire that is creating the possibility of something new happening in your life. But it's that desire, it's that leaning in. And there are three of the Beatitudes where this word, Lelaine, is added. And it's the fourth Beatitude, the sixth Beatitude, and the eighth Beatitude. And it'll be interesting because in every single one of those, there is this sense of desire. There is this sense of, of leaning in. The sixth beatitude is blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the eighth beatitude is blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. There's a sense of perseverance, that sense of desire and moving forward. And then finally, to be filled, to be satisfied. This boon means literally surrounded by fruit, <laughs> encircled by birth and by generation. That idea of sitting at this huge feast and everything is around you. So to be the one who is waiting, watching, leaning in for that sense of rightness, that sense of of direction, and then to find yourself in the middle of the feast. Let's read some paraphrases. Healed are those who crave and passionately desire a good place with God. They will find it and know that they have found it. How about the message again? You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. A little bit of lightheartedness there with him. Again, see how this starts. I'm hoping to make it alive for you. Make it something that you can actually lean into yourselves. The fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So merciful. Lamramane. Lam Ramane. It can mean merciful. It can mean compassion that is moved into action. This is not compassion that is passive. Not compassion that is just mental, that we understand the connection we have with this other person. This is the kind of compassion that is motivating. It's moving us towards some sort of action. It can mean pity and it can mean love. But it means love as coming from the depths of our being. The word for mercy itself is Ram. And Ram is also connected to Rahim, which is the word for love. Each one of these three words, at its very root, is the word for a womb, a woman's womb. The idea that that womb is the deepest part, the seat of generation, of purpose, of children, for whom love just flows effortlessly, that sense of connection is so deep if it comes from that wellspring from within. It's as if we are birthing mercy in this sense as it comes through us. To obtain, blessed are the merciful, they will receive or they will obtain mercy. The word there is newun, more than just obtaining, once again, in a passive way, that this mercy is now bestowed upon us, it's the idea of a waking vision, an awakening. These people will be shown, but in a way, again, that's coming from inside to outside. 
you're going to see this over and over again. What sounds passive to us, what we understand as passive, as just saying a prayer and something is bestowed to us, is just the opposite. It's an engagement into an experience that creates a realization from the inside out. But this idea of mercy, this idea of the merciful, connected to rahem, it's so interesting. There are two different words for, for love, rahem and hab. When Jesus uses rahem, he says, love your neighbor. Rahem is that love that comes from the womb, that comes from inside and just flows effortlessly outward. But when he says, love your enemy, he uses the word hab. In the roots, hab is to kindle a fire. You might be thinking, what in the world does kindling a fire have to do with love, right? Or it can mean a germinating seed. All right, that doesn't help any here. But think about it. If you're kindling a fire, what do you do? And remember the Hebrew mindset. It's all about concrete action that is creating the connection with them that they have to whatever it is they're talking about. And that becomes the word, right? The verb then becomes the noun. But if you're going to kindle a fire, what do you do? You take a bunch of little dry sticks and twigs and you pile them up, you know, and then you get some kindling. You know, maybe it's just some kind of hair or really small fibers and you got to spark it or you got to do the thing with a stick until it gets hot enough to create. And then you got to blow on it and you got to be careful. You got to make sure no wind comes and then you got to slowly feed it thicker sticks and thicker sticks and thicker sticks and eventually you have a roaring campfire. To love your enemy is just like that, isn't it? starting with little dead, dry things, lifeless, no, no moisture in them. But eventually, if you are careful and you continue to stoke it, you can have this roaring fire. And the same thing with a die, dry, dead seed. Put it in the ground, create the right circumstances, water it, tend it, and you will have a life-giving source. It's amazing and beautiful and poetic and figurative the way Hebrew and Aramaic work, just the language itself, if we can get into those roots and understand what's really going on. Fifth beatitude. A couple of paraphrases. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. How about thriving are those who moved? Thriving are those moved to help someone in need, turning feeling into action, for they will experience the comfort that they give. And from the message, you're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. Not bad. Thriving are those. Sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Okay, so we got a lot of words there. What's this pure in heart business? What are we talking about here? Pure, the word pure. Dadkain in Aramaic. It means consistent in love, consistent in compassion, having a sense of abundance, even a sense of purpose, and a purpose that is electrified, a purpose that just pops you out of bed like a piece of toast in the morning. That kind of purpose. Not just some, again, some dry abstract thing, but what is it that really animates you? What do you have passion and compassion for? To be pure is to be consistent in that day after day. Heart, lebhon, is any center from which life radiates. And so it's our idea of the heart of the home is the kitchen, right? That's the center from which life radiates in the home, right? That's the idea of heart here, not just the heart and not just a sentimental idea, but that it really is a center of life, of vitality, of affection, of courage, of audacity. It is that vital center of all of that. To be pure in heart is to be consistent in the love and the compassion as the center of that vitality in your life that gives you the sense of abundance, that gives you that electrifying purpose. The two connect. They shall see God. Nezun also refers to an inner vision. It refers to contemplation and the contemplative practice, the insight that comes almost like a flash of lightning. If you've read any of the stories from the Zen masters, as they were teaching their students, when they sensed that the student was just about ready to break into an enlightenment, break into uh, a larger understanding of life, 
sometimes they would walk and sneak up behind them very <laughs> very quietly and then clap right behind their head because it would just be that shock, that sound that would take them into and break them into a whole different way of thinking and seeing. Sometimes it was a clap of thunder from the lightning that would do exactly the same thing as they sat in meditation. This is the same sort of idea. This seeing, this nizun, would be this insight that comes like a flash of lightning, comes when you finally have filled yourself up right to the eyeballs, and then it just breaks through. That kind of inner vision, that kind of clarity. To see what? To see God, Allah, which means oneness, which means unity, which means multiple things functioning as one as if there is no difference between them. That's the idea here. If we have this consistency of heart that is focused in compassion and love, we will have that inner vision, that awakening, that insight that flashes to the unity of everything that is around us. Take a look. Congratulations to those whose innermost passions and desires are free from anything that is false. They shall see God and God's unity everywhere they look. And from the message, you're blessed when you get your inside world your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. The inner voices and the outer voices, the inner community and the outer community, together, one, integrated, speaking the same language, seeing the same thing. So important for us to understand where they're going with all of this. Seventh Beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God or more politically correct, they shall be called children of God. How's that? So we have the first word here, peacemakers. If you translate it directly from the Aramaic, it would be makers of peace. Peace here, shlama in Aramaic, or shalom in Hebrew, which you probably are more familiar with. Shlama, shalom, selam in Arabic. It's all the same word. All the same consonants, just different vowel points between the three languages. And there are so many words between those three Semitic languages that are the same this way. But peace here, shlama, shalom, means complete and whole. It's the greatest amount of wholeness and wellness and connection and unity and prosperity that a person can possibly experience. This is why Hebrews and Jews today even use shalom as their hello and their goodbye, their salutation, just the way Hawaiians use aloha in the same way. It means health to you. It means the greatest amount of wealth and peace and connection to you, whether we're coming or whether we're going. Now, this is in contrast to the, the word shena. Shena is the word that Jesus used when he says, I, you think I came to bring peace? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. And we're thinking, wait a minute, you're the prince of peace. What the heck is going on here? But the word he uses there is shena, which means calm or tranquility. He's saying, I didn't come to bring you calm and tranquility. This journey you're about to undertake is going to create the sword. It's going to create the point of division between you and everybody else who's saying, what the heck are you doing? I liked you better before. Where are you going with this? And it's going to create the inner division because you're, having, you're being asked to give up everything that you've been clinging to your entire life. And now you're going to let go of that? You don't think that's disturbing? You don't think that's difficult? Later on, Jesus is going to tell us that road is the narrow road with the constricted gate, and few go by that. He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about our ability to move along this line and deal with the lack of peace in, in the sense of calm and tranquility that is going to ensue for a time until we get to the true shalom that is only on the other side of that wilderness experience. It's the only way to get there. This is the peace that Jesus is talking about. The makers of this kind of peace, Lavde, is more than just stopping a conflict. That's it's such a limited idea of peace in this sense. It's not about stopping a conflict. It's committed to an ongoing action that you get up for every single day of your life, day after day. An intense daily effort. The roots of of this word, love day, go all the way back to the agrarian roots of the Hebrew people. The idea of tilling the soil, a head bent over the work that is being done every single day, getting up every day, committed 
to this crop, committed to the livelihood and the sustenance of the family. Day after day, nobody watching, no one pinning a medal, no one rewarding you other than to be working in the rhythms of nature, of wind and rain, and then seeing the crops that finally come. Makers of peace are the ones who get up every single day committed to the unity that is the shalom that we seek. They shall be called nitkarun. <laughs> These roots talk about digging a channel or digging a well, allowing water to flow, water to, to run. And again, this is one of those things that just seems so random. Where is this coming from? How does this work? To be called in this way is to be hollowed out by the process that we're talking about that makes channels for God's love to be able to flow, this unity that we're talking about. To dig a channel, to allow yourself to become a conduit to what? To God and God's unity is literally to be a son or a child. This, this word that is called sons of is a word that means the embodiment or the realization of what before was just mere potential. In other words, it's to make something real that was only vaporware before. It was only on paper before. But when you make it real in your life by becoming a conduit for it, it's not like it starts with you. It flows through you. That's the idea of being called sons of God, to be recognized as those who flow in the same way that God flows, the unity and the connection. This is the idea here. Take a look at the paraphrases. Whole and balanced are those who exert themselves, planting health, safety, and understanding every season, year in, year out. They will discover who they really are and their place in God's family. The message? You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. Same ideas there. Last Beatitude, number 8, Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this one, we've got a possible mistranslation. I love getting into these kind of controversies, yeah? But if it's not a translation, at least it, we can consider it a multi-layered idea here that is coming across with this word. This word, redep, in, in Aramaic means to pursue or to follow to drive to chase away to banish or to persecute so you can see how the two ideas kind of follow each other you're following something or you're pursuing something in the sense that now you're driving it you're chasing it away you're banishing it or you're persecuting it and so there's kind of a continuum of meaning here in this word which is the one that we choose how do we choose? Is it follow and pursue, or is it persecute? Now, the translators chose persecute. Well, why did they do that? Because it's the context that is going to determine the meaning. Just with our words that, you know, you got light and light, or wait and wait, which one means what? You know, are you waiting for someone, or do you want to lose some weight? Well, the context is going to tell us the difference. The same thing here, context. But it also has to do with the mindset and the filter that you are looking at the phrase with, that is also going to skew you one way or another. And we talked about in the West that we are the heirs of Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy is dualistic. It makes a distinguish between many things, but between matter and spirit especially. In Greek thought, matter is, if not outright evil, as opposed to spirit, which is good, it's at least less than and needs to be subsumed in order to become more and more attuned to the spiritual. And this is the notion of the church, isn't it? I mean, haven't we been told over and over we got to get out of the fleshly world and we got to become more spiritual? We have to let go of all these things. It got to such a fever pitch by the Middle Ages that marriage was looked at as a lowly status and celibacy was the high status. You only, you know, 
exercise your conjugal rights in order to make kids, and you better not enjoy it because that is going to be less spiritual. And self-mortification, the self-flagellation, and all the things that people did to try to mortify the flesh, to put it down, to put it away, to become more and more spiritual, to connect more and more with Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. Hebrew theology is unitive. It's non-dual. It sees everything as one thing, and it sees the world, our bodies, and everything that God created as good. If you're going to become more spiritual in Hebrew thought, you lean into the physical. You engage the physical. Read the Old Testament. It's about as earthy in body and sometimes raunchy as you can imagine because they're not afraid of this stuff. They encoded it into their sacred scriptures. This is life, life that is engaged in the physical is life that's engaged in the spiritual. And yet, the attitude of the Greeks, and as they're translating these words, or the thought forms, at least out of the Aramaic, you can see where they would have gone to persecute as opposed to pursue. Now, to be fair, everywhere this word is used in the rest of the New Testament, it's always in the context of persecution. So there's that, Right? And there's also the sense that the next passage that we're not going to read today is talking about persecution. So there are a lot of reasons that they chose persecution, and that's not necessarily wrong. But look what happens if we think about blessed are those not who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, but blessed are those who are pursuing righteousness. How does that change and fit in with everything else that we're reading in terms of the characteristics and the attributes of this kingdom person? Or maybe it's a combination of the two. And not only that, this is one of those beatitudes that has that extra word lelain, that idea of waiting and watching by lamplight for something to occur with that sense of, of, of desire and passion. How does that fit also with someone who is pursuing righteousness? In Isaiah 51, listen to me, those who radaf, it's a Hebrew word that is the same as radep. Listen to me, those who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. In that case, the, con- the context forced us into using pursue. We've got to decide here which one that we're going to use. Take a look at some paraphrases, some possible paraphrases here. Ripe are those pursuing rightness and purity for their own sake. For the reign of God is the same as this. No more, no less. And then this one that kind of combines the two. Right on time. How's that for translating blessed? Right on time are those who draw shame, are dislocated and disunited for their pursuit of peace between conflicting voices. They realize their part in the vision of God's reign. Maybe that's the best one. It combines both of the ideas in such a way that it's still so connected to the other seven Beatitudes and once again is painting this consistent picture of this person, this person of kingdom. Now there is some in some people's minds a ninth Beatitude in my mind, it's probably not one of the, of, the, of the eight. It changes voice and it changes several other things. We're going to talk about that next week. So we're going to stop on the Beatitudes. These eight are the ones. And so who is kingdom here? Having read through these eight in an Aramaic sense, who is kingdom? Notice, who is kingdom? Not what is kingdom. Not who has kingdom or who has entered kingdom because it's not about possession Kingdom is about realization. And in the first and third Beatitudes, take a look, right? Who are the poor in spirit? Who are the gentle and meek? The idea, who is kingdom? First of all, this kingdom person is humble. This kingdom person is anavim, submitted, dependent, vulnerable, grateful, this is a person who understands and accepts their own basic self-nature. What is a humble person? Not someone who thinks less of themselves. Not someone who tries to put themselves down. A humble person is someone who understands deeply the nature of the relationship that they have with everyone else, with God, and with their own life. To realistically understand where you stand. That's humility. 
Let's not be more or less to anybody else. It's just knowing. I am a dependent. I am a vulnerable, fallible human being. And I can glory in that. I can be fearlessly vulnerable. And I can be joyfully dependent if I allow myself to be. That's the first and third beatitude, the attributes. The second, the fifth, and the seventh are talking about being connected, empathetic, sympathetic, merciful, forgiving. This person understands and accepts the oneness of everyone, the connection of everyone, that we're only playing within community, that nothing makes any sense apart from that connection. The first and third are talking about understanding your own inner self and where you stand. This one is putting you in connection with everyone else. The fourth, the sixth, and the eighth Beatitudes, maybe the operative word there is undiverted. Steadfast, consistent, patient, earnest, relentless, right? Integrated, passionately desiring unity, and leaving no stone unturned to try to find it in your life. Now, if we view these legally, as we were talking about at the beginning, if it's just more rules for us to obey, we will never graduate to kingdom. You cannot obey your way into kingdom. It is not possible. If you're just following rules, you will never get there. It's like trying to go from point A to point B, and you go half the distance and half the distance and half the distance. When do you ever arrive? Never. It's the same way with trying to obey your way into kingdom. The transformation comes in a completely different direction, not from outside in, but from inside out. And if we view these beatitudes in this sermon literally, then they're just a set of impossible standards that we cannot keep, and they become irrelevant, and we will ignore them. We will put them aside because there's nothing that we can do with them. Jesus is not giving us things to do. He's showing us the attributes of his Father in heaven, the truth of his Father in heaven, which is the love and the unity and the connection that we typically don't see on any given day, and the freedom that comes from really allowing that to become the operative part of our lives, to be able to see and understand that our God is humble, connected, and undiverted. That's who our God is. That's what Jesus is showing us. And blessed are we when we take on these same attributes, not because we have to, not because we're afraid if we don't, but because it is our deepest pleasure to do so, that we can't imagine living any other way. When we become the same as God is in our attributes, we become one with him. We and the Father are one. There is no daylight between us. We are now kingdom. We are born again. We're saved. And salvation to a Jew is spiritual liberation here and now, not entrance into heaven sometime later. Another word that we don't get. There's work to do. That's what Jesus is telling us. There is work to do, but it's not the work of addition. And this is so important to understand. It's not something that we legally perform. It's not an accomplishment that we create in order to get God's approval. The work that we do is subtraction, not addition. It's actually losing ourself. Jesus says the kingdom is within you. Don't look out there for it. This kingdom person, this person who lives in that kind of freedom and that kind of connection with God is already sitting inside you right now as if frozen in a block of ice. The work that you do will be to chip away everything that is not that kingdom person within you that you were born with, that you were born to be. There's no boasting in this work. You didn't accomplish something. All you did was uncover what was there from the beginning, and to make it real, to realize it in your life. Jesus is helping us, trying to help us with everything in him, every poetic tool at his disposal to help us break the cycle of our own non-awareness, to wake up. Most of us are sleepwalking through life, just accepting what the world has placed on us, what our experiences have placed on us from the pain and the trauma that we have suffered the legal and literal mindsets that have been placed on us. Jesus is trying to get us to wake up in the moment so that we can see who we really are 
to understand what we really control, which is so little, just our desire to get in the process, to be consistent, to get up and work the process, that's what we control. To wake up and see the connection of everyone and everything around us. To join in the mourning, the peacemaking, and the forgiving of our community around us, of everyone who crosses our path. To see that connection, to join in, to be moved to provide whatever we can. To wake up to real meaning and purpose that pops us out of bed like that piece of toast and allows us to become someone that people can count on to have that consistency. To rescue the Sermon on the Mount from irrelevance is to see it again as it was first delivered. Not impossible standards that we can't meet. Not absurd tasks that we just put away on a shelf. But this wake-up call to our own awareness of who we are and how we connect, to begin to see life through the eyes of a humble and connected and undiverted God, that if we don't learn to value ourselves, we will never engender those attributes in ourselves. This is what Jesus is trying to show us. Let's pray. Father, it is so good to be here. Thank you for our group. Thank you for those who are really trying to understand something beyond what they think they know. Blessed are those of us who are willing to sell everything that we think we own, to give it away, and to follow an uncharted path that seems scary at first. Blessed are those of us who will trust you enough to take those first steps and to see where they lead and to see if there really is new possibility, a different way of living life that maybe we haven't even imagined that will make us free enough to be able to be those fearlessly vulnerable people, those joyfully dependent people that are kingdom and can understand and accept life in a different way. That's what we want, Father. You know we're frail. You know we're fearful. Help us to overcome that in these first few steps on which we can build. And thank you for being the God of love and consistency and undiverted purpose yourself, Father. There, let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.